Hi everyone, and we're back with the New Mexico series where Jesse Dearenwater, Leona Morgan, and I talk to and learn from the local peoples who are fighting against the nuclear fuel chain in New Mexico. As mentioned, New Mexico has been a sacrifice zone for the nuclear industry. From the first testing of nuclear weapon, the relentless mining of uranium, radioactive areas, and now transportation and storage of nuclear waste. New Mexico and the indigenous people have experienced far too much neglect and harm. This is a story of the people in New Mexico who are fighting for justice and guiding a new generation of activists to write their own narrative. Los Alamos National Lab came into New Mexico in 1943 and were the ones who designed and tested the first nuclear weapon. Beata, who we hear from first, speaks about how Los Alamos National Lab was actually supposed to be a temporary site, and they stole the land through eminent domain from the Pueblo people. There is now a narrative from the lab that the people in the area should strive to work for them, coming into schools and speaking of the good that they're doing. While leaving out the stolen land as well as the vast amounts of radiation they're consistently exposing them to, Another aspect to this is that they don't encourage the native people to work in the management roles, rather than cleanup and remediation of it. This is Beata with Tiwa Women United. They are a multicultural, multiracial organization founded and led by native women. We are in Española at a community garden that she helped to create. She tells us all the pollinators planted and the mushroom varieties they have to help soak up some of the radiation and other pollutants in the area. Most of this is from Los Alamos National Laboratories, also known as LANL. My name is Yata Sosi Pena, and I'm from Santa Clara Pueblo, in Biatgindi, now Kuahiwapovi, Nehapo Owinge Omu, Keatoa Omu. I'm a mom, seed saver. I work in indigenous sustainable design. I'm a birth worker, and I've been an environmental health and reproductive justice advocate for, gosh, about 13 years now. I've worked with different organizations in the community, local nonprofits, and right now I'm the organizational director of Breath of My Heart Birthplace, which is a freestanding birth center and home birth practice in a traditional Hapoinga territory in Española, New Mexico. And so Jesse, Darrenwater, Leona, Morgan, and I all met with you back in September of last year in New Mexico. And we talked about nuclear things with you. And so can mm-hmm. you talk about how you came to know the damage that the nuclear industry is doing in your community? Sure. I think growing up, you know, I was also part of a lot of the pro-war propaganda and erasure of Native perspectives on this issue of nuclear colonialism. And so it wasn't really a big part of my awareness until I became older and moved back to my Pueblo with my family and my young children. And it was then that I started experiencing the explosions on an almost daily basis. This was back in 2008. It was really an epiphany moment of when I realized what they were really doing up there, to be honest. You know, we always kind of had like, oh, there's those scientists up there. But like, it wasn't until that moment that I was like, okay, this is war. This is the intersections of violence and intergenerational trauma in our communities around addiction and substance use and 
environmental violence. So it was like all these connections formed in my brain of the disparities in our community and having this culture of violence occupying our sacred mountains, knowing that people never really talked about it growing up. And I think there's a lot of cultural reasons for why that is. But I think the big one being that in regards to environmental racism, toxic industries are going to set up next to poor communities of color because they're not going to protest the job creation that happens. And I think that's why culturally we're we're taught to that work is a blessing and we don't really speak bad about it, you know. And But also there's been this intentional shaming of our culture over the years as far as Indigenous technology and expertise and ways of knowing as being less than with the dominant society. So in a lot of ways, people, I think, don't feel qualified or that it's their place to speak on things that they don't understand or know a lot about of because so much of these issues, when you do try and be involved, it's just so technical and that can be really overwhelming for people who don't have a lot of background knowledge or grew up their whole lives not even being taught about it like I was. And so hearing these explosions rumbling through our landscape, you know, it was brought up a lot of fear for me at first. I prayed about it because, you know, I had just moved my kids here and it was then that I got a job with a local nonprofit, Table Women United, to work on addressing these issues around Los Alamos National Laboratories and the nuclear impacts from nuclear weapons production. From there, I started to really do a lot of self-education along with other members in the community, which was part of our part of the work I was doing was, you know, having focus groups and trying to build advocacy around the community being more prepared to speak on these issues. And so those explosions that I was experiencing were from high explosives, disposal and testing. And so that's one of many concerns that we have living adjacent to this facility. These laboratories are about 20 minutes from my backyard. A lot of the waste concerns are a lot around the legacy waste. Because when the military came to occupy our sacred places under the War Powers Act and eminent domain, it was in complete secrecy. And so there was not free informed prior consent given to the um, sovereign nations here and to the Chicano land grant communities who were also displaced through this project, this occupation project. It was completely unregulated at that time. So a lot of the waste they were just dumping into the canyons, releasing into the air, into our water systems. So cleanup of this legacy waste is one of the ongoing issues that we're dealing with today. And the, the nuclear waste dump sites that are up there and the hundreds of contaminated sites, not to mention the spiritual and cultural and physical impacts, you know, that are all compounded. So there's a lot that we can talk about as far as the contamination concerns and impacts, the generational harm and impacts, you know, the reproductive justice aspects of how this is impacting future generations. So that's just a little bit of of what I came to learn, you know, experiencing this, you know, part of my daily existence in my homelands. So I was it's fortunate that I came into this work with a generation of Tewa aunties and grandmothers who had already been activists and advocates before me and who I was able to get mentorship from. And so it's really apparent to me that it's Indigenous women who are leading the resistance against a lot of these activities and who have been holding it down and really playing the long game 
with a lot of these issues. Yeah. And could you talk about some of the background on Los Alamos National Lab, how it was supposed to be a temporary site and how it's obviously not anymore? And then kind of talk about the repercussions of effects it has on, you know, reproductive rights, cultural heritage and everything like that. So when the the military came in under the Manhattan Project, you know, the mission was to develop atomic weapons and it was the you know it wasn't the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki who were the first victims it was the people of New Mexico Mm -hmm. through the Trinity test Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so when they first developed their bombs they detonated them in southern New Mexico adjacent to other communities Muscalero Apaches and again more lots of land-grant communities who were also land-based we want to center indigenous and land-based communities in this work as far as like environmental protections and putting these stories up that have been historically erased. But when the, you know, they came in needing that workforce from the communities in the valley. So a lot of the Pueblo people came up as working class or um, serving class to Los Alamos folks. And they were not told about the, the potential dangers of working with these materials. And so there was a lot of secondhand exposures from workers who went up and then would come home to their families, you know, or they would wonder why perfectly good items were thrown out and bring those home to their families when they were contaminated with radionuclides. And at the time of the Trinity test explosion, you know, that plume crossed state lines into Colorado. So it's our whole state that was impacted and communities in southern New Mexico they face cancer rates six to eight times the national average to this day. So we're talking about whole families who have been lost to cancer, you know, with sibling relations and and how those toxins have broken, break down over time. You know, we know these things are around for thousands of years, but as they break down, they also change form into ways that impact different parts of the body as far as exposure pathways. So that's something to think about of how the illness presents itself generationally and how it shows up differently depending on on how these things break down over time and the pathways into the body. So the fallout from that Trinity test, it was in people's cisterns, their drinking water, it was in their, affected their livestock, a lot of ranching communities. There was increased infant mortality at the time because of, you know, the transfer, I'm sure the transfer into breast milk and also these are some of the Moving forward, like the water that they're using to cool plutonium turns into tritium, which is radioactive water, is very easy to become part of the, you know, bioaccumulation and it can cross placental boundaries, you know. But back to the the Trinity test, like the people weren't told that that fallout was even harmful. So they went about their daily lives and land based existence and had huge exposure. And to this day, they're trying to get justice and compensation and healthcare, and expanding the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act to include downwinders and not just workers and uh, miners, which is what is covered now. And it's been 75 years since that explosion. And, the, you know, our people still haven't even got an apology or any kind of restorative justice. So the whole state of New Mexico and anywhere with nuclear that has nuclear impacts definitely needs healthcare, free healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here, what my worry is, is that indigenous peoples aren't protected by environmental exposure regulations to this day. 
starting with that original environmental racism and violence where our peoples were seen as disposable and, you know, for these agendas. It's known that beginning of the nuclear age, when standards did start to get developed of, okay, we need to start regulating this, you know, after testing was banned and those kind of things, they were determining safe levels of, okay, quotation safe, (laughs) Mm -hmm. exposure regulations based on an adult white male who's Western and European in descent and custom. Mm. And and so that's the standard that is upheld to this day, you know, and so that's not protective of our people who are outside for longer periods of time, who have, who still gather our natural foods and medicines and have a lot of ceremonial and cultural contact with our natural springs. And we harvest the clays for our dishes and our pottery you know, it's we're our agricultural community, so you know we still grow a lot of our own food and all of these things that are also that are our strengths as land-based people, but they also set us up for cumulative and multiple exposures over long periods of time. And so this this white male model of environmental exposure regulations is so obsolete, and there's been a lot of work nationally in changing that standard. But I think the reality is, is there's no safe level of radiation for a pregnant person. You know, and if a pregnant person was the standard of exposure, which is what we advocate for, we put forth the model of Navatoijia, land worker mother, as the standard for environmental protections. And if she's protected, everybody's protected. It is also known that women are twice as likely to get cancer from the same dose as a man. And infants are 75% as likely. Mm, Wow. Scientists know this, but yet there's no moral and ethical efforts to change the standards of exposure regulations. And then it's not just the radionuclides that we're concerned with. It's hundreds of chemicals. It's PCBs. You know, they're also researching chemical and biological weapons up there. And what you hear is a lot of propaganda of like the small percent of their budget that is for like renewables and, you know, these things that they like to highlight. But the reality is the majority of their budget is for maintaining the nuclear weapons stockpile and any bones that are thrown to the community in forms of scholarship or educational programs. It's to maintain their workforce, to maintain that mission. And that really angers me the harvesting of our young people and the narrative that they're told and like given that, oh, it's this, you make it when you get to go work for the labs, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really unfortunate that that's the message that they're getting in this community when we have so much wealth as land-based people and pathways to other forms of life-affirming work. And when I said the connections of, you know, mental health and behavioral health issues in our community, That's what happens when a people's ways of knowing are forced to split in two and choose between a living wage and an economy for their families or work that is more aligned with their cultural values and beliefs. So when you have to put aside your cultural values and beliefs for work, it splits your spirit in two, you know, and it makes it hard to cope with the other systemic issues that all get compounded in our communities. So, you know, we're, we live in Rio Riba County, which is the poorest county in the nation per capita. And Los Alamos County is the richest county in the nation per capita. Hmm. 
And wow. it's no coincidence that these the richest and poorest counties in the nation are directly next to each other. And so there's also, also this lie of trickle-down economics and, and the threat of like losing jobs or creating jobs that political leaders are so entrenched with, with the laboratories as, you know, upholding systems of racism and military dominance. And it's, you know, it's it's really, it can be really discouraging when you look at the military complex and the nuclear complex as a whole in the country and how now they're wanting to send the country's nuclear waste to New Mexico, you know, and, and they're wanting to start adding high-level waste to the state. And so it's, you know, going back, this is a long answer to your original question of like, you know, how it was supposed to be a temporary facility. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to leave after these weapons were, you know, after the technology was harnessed. But because they have, there's so many trillions of dollars that have passed through these laboratories alone. And it is a for-profit complex. So they're making money producing weapons of war and they're in mass destruction. And they're making money through contamination that's caused. And this site that they're on, it's on the western part of our Tewa Cathedral on the Jemez Plateau, which is part of the Pajarito Plateau. In this plateau, it's a dormant supervolcano. There's so many fault lines that run underneath these laboratories that they have lied about in the past of where these fault lines run, which are underneath the plutonium storage facility up there. The geology is very porous and not conducive to a waste site. It was in this pristine, beautiful, sacred place, you know, that was also on hundreds of our ancestral Tewa cultural sites, many that we don't have access to anymore and that are now behind armed guards and razor wire. So that's another aspect of like, you know, the spiritual and cultural impacts. So like now there's this disruption of these places that we, that our grandparents would take us. And that's part of how we would take care of this place and be stewards. It's really heartbreaking to see the ongoing desecration of these places that have so much spiritual and cultural significance for us. Because we're still here in our ancestral homelands. We were never relocated like like many of our indigenous relatives were in the country that went through so much, you know, and We've gone through it too, but now but it's it's shifted to a form of violence that is our environment, our habitat. And you know, you look at the health of any native communities and you can gauge the health of the surrounding environment mm-hmm. because we are a living part of our ecologies, we're a living part of our our natural systems. And there was that cycle of caregiving with this place that that we had to take care of and we we know the communication of how to like speak to these speak on these things so the site was chosen for its secrecy and not its safety and it's unfortunate that people have really bought into these kind of false narratives about the benefits for people when there has been some economic analysis and it's it's costing us we're gaining short term but the long term is going to be huge and it already is yeah i don't know what else you want to talk about as far as like those issues cuz there's there's a lot more you know around water yeah. Yeah. I guess when we were in person, you also talked about going back to the narrative that the lab tells people they kind of target kids in the community and tell them to get a job at the lab, but more for the remediation jobs. So could you talk a bit about that as well? Sure. You know, like I mentioned, 
we are one of the hard issues that we're dealing with is systemic poverty in, in our region. And it's rare that our community members get the million dollar jobs that, you know, the, the 1% on the hill are, are, are profiting from. We've historically been the ones who are trying to do cleanup of these sites, who have to handle hazardous substances. And just recently, you know, there was a programs developed at our, our local college, and it wasn't for renewable energy. It wasn't for agriculture. It wasn't for healthcare or wellness or these things that these other pathways that are so needed you know in fact a lot of our health programs are shut down at that school now but it was for how to handle radiological waste and um, they're not told through going into these programs that they're not even protected by current environmental protections of radio radioactive exposure i've been up to the nuclear waste dump uh, area g and those workers have nothing on but work gloves handling these barrels of mixed waste you know, and there's stuff buried there that I don't know if they even know how to dig it up and dispose of it or take it somewhere else where it's not going to just like outlive its con the containers it's in. And a lot of the scholarships, it only co they come with the condition that you end up working for the labs in some capacity. There's not a lot of critical thinking that they're being encouraged to do around what, what kind of job and what kind of work do you deserve. And what kind of your people deserve? Does the land deserve? You know, because we have sacrificed so much already for the military in this country. And in a way that's been exploited historically because our people gained citizenship so late in the game and the right to vote and to have a voice and to have some agency and self-determination in our own political sovereignty. And, and it's hard to take care of people and families when... We are rural land-based communities, but yet those those ways of supporting ourselves and that communal lifestyle have shifted to the nuclear age. We didn't really have the industrial revolution here to have that transition. You know, we went straight from being completely land-based people to the nuclear age in our communities. And I don't think we were able to have a say in that momentum of like really thinking critically of like, and not even really given the choice of is this something that we want for our peoples and for our children to have to move into, you know. So there's a lot of thought that needs to go into what kind of work do we want our young people to have and what kind of environment do we want them to inherit um, in this beautiful place. Yeah, and just pivoting off that for a little bit, could you talk about your community garden and remediation garden that you're working on or worked on? Sure. So part of the part of the work and advocacy, you know, there's this piece of trying to play the law, you know, take taking on the torch of our elders and speaking out against these these activities that are happening in our homelands, trying to get cleanup, trying to get stricter protections and more stringent laws. And it's exhausting work. And <laughs> undercompensated and all those things, you know. But at the same time, we have, like I mentioned, we have so many strengths as land-based peoples that we do have the ability to adapt and make sure our bodies are strong and resilient and as healthy as possible through our traditional foods, through our living relations with our non-human relatives and ecologies, through our spiritual and cultural practices that give us a lot of strength and that have never ended in their continuity. 
despite three waves of colonial violence in these lands. And those were the things that were passed on to us despite that. You know, these these seeds that we plant, knowing where to access our traditional foods and our ecology, knowing how to take care of these places and make sure they're not being damaged or if they are, like how to fix them up, how to give them attention and love and care. So it was part of our work to like really keep people in on those strengths that we have. And one of that was was community gardens, was working on food and seed sovereignty. So we did do this project as part of my time with TWU called the Española Healing Foods Oasis. And it's it's a beautiful little garden that was in this kind of abused, neglected slope for many years in Valdez Park in Española. And it was a hot spot. It was completely barren, dealing with a lot of erosion issues. And we turned it into a rainwater harvesting garden. And it took about five years to get it established. But now it's it's got fruit trees, it's got medicinal herbal plants, is what it's composed of, pollinator habitats. It's this beautiful outdoor educational healing space to come together and reconnect with our plant relatives and our natural medicines and that cultural knowledge that we're not that far removed from, many of us. You know, this was our grandparents' generation that were living this way. So um, it's really easy for us to tap back into those ways of knowing, even if we're a little bit disconnected. So it's been beautiful to see just the thousands of hours of community volunteers that have come in to help build this garden, all the community collaboration and networking, all the different multicultural prayers that have happened in this space and healing that has happened in this space. Um, It's just one example of like taking a small spot and giving it love and care and how it can just totally transform yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and and part of this work was also looking at bio and micro remediation, which is using strengthening natural systems to remediate themselves, and also using mycelium as a form of remediation. So we've used both, and and I believe in using both, and really use like you have to look at the sy- natural systems as a whole for these processes to be effective. And there's a lot of work and movement happening nationally and globally around the potential for cleaning up contaminated sites using these methods. They're cheaper and way more effective in removing the toxins. And so at the Healing Foods Oasis, you know, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of concerns to begin with. We did do soil testing before we started. And it was, um, but mostly because we're harvesting rainwater from a parking lot, we did have some concerns about the occasional oil drips and things that come with rainwater and puddles and things like that. And so we did bury oyster and the first level of of catchment and we know that oyster mushrooms can digest oil and gas byproducts that's one of the superpowers of of fungi is like they can digest actually eat contaminants and transform it into something less harmful where the only waste you're then dealing with is the fruiting body of the mycelium which is the mushroom and that's a lot easier to dispose of than hundreds of tons of contaminated soil you know if you were looking at a contaminated site So we do have these remediation layers built into the garden that we can talk about. They were buried there by youth who gave public comment on hexavalent chromium in our aquifer. When we were talking about these issues with them, we like to give them solutions. This is something you can do, you know, start to do these methods of um, restoring natural systems, restoring the environment to its pristine state, to where the community of microorganisms and macroorganisms can work together 
And that's the lesson, right? It's, it's, it's these collaborative, cooperative networks of love and care and sharing resources and looking at the harm and making it more manageable. The other superpowers of mycelium is like taking contamination and using translocation to kind of like bring it closer. And so like, then you can dispose of it in a way that's like less damaging and less disturbing of the soil. And then also biosorption. So these are ways that we can look at these larger systems too, of like, how are we going to be able to, uh, to identify harm and the way that transformation works in our ecologies, starting with these mycelium relatives, which I can go on and on about that. It's a whole other probably topic, you know, <laughs> that yeah, we could yeah. talk about. <laughs> but um, it's so interesting. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just like, this is where we used to model our societies off of, was these natural systems. And it really pushes back on these like white supremacist narratives that were taught of survival of the fittest and all, you know, these things that just like, well, actually the most sustainable and oldest living organisms on the planet are cooperative and collaborative in nature, mm-hmm. you know, and there, and there's those lessons of how we can be live sustainably on this planet if we want to go back to them and these indigenous ways of knowing. So um, we've also done remediation projects in agricultural fields at the Española Farmers Market where soil was found to be contaminated with RDX, which is from the high explosives we talked about earlier. That's a contaminant that's water soluble. So it, it's very easy for it to get into our watershed and our irrigation ditches, our secchia systems. So we buried turkey tail mushrooms in that field, which can actually break down RDX into nitrogen, which is beneficial for plants. You know, so it's like depending on the contaminant, then you can know how to like remediate it. But the reality is like, testing for what contaminants are there are very expensive and that's been like one of the biggest barriers I think to this work is the sampling and testing and knowing what it is we're dealing with like in in surrounding communities or communities downwind downstream within a hundred mile radius of a nuclear site it's huge and then we've also done work in the greater Chaco region with the counselor and Pueblo Pintado chapter houses and just starting this small little beautiful speck of a remediation garden, you know, in, in the middle, these lands just riddled with fracking pads and wastewater dumps and, you know, making, making a micro remediation garden out there and teaching the people about it. And I think that was our latest micro remediation project. And this was with um, my colleague, Caitlin Bryson, who's an artist and mycologist. Yeah, there's so much potential and hope for how we don't have to know, we don't have to wait for to spin our wheels and constantly ask for cleanup. We can start ourselves, you know, um, with our own bodies and with our our lands that we have immediate influence over. And that's a really powerful thing as it starts to spread and grow in that movement. And just being mindful that how are you incorporating Indigenous-led collaborations? How are you doing that internal work of unlearning white supremacist ideology and, mm-hmm. and oppression? On um, that is ongoing and on each other. And it really is part of a, a movement of land back of that our young people are very aware of. And it's so amazing to see just this next wave of resistance coming from young people who are not blind anymore, like I was growing up, to the issues that were they're inheriting. 
you know, there's a lot of just brilliance in the direct action and liberation movements that are that are have been ongoing. You know, I guess I guess it's never ended in a lot of ways. I think that there's a lot of work to do on solidarity building between communities that are impacted. And it's hard because because of capitalism, we're all spread so thin and working and, and parenting. And I know for myself, it's really hard to devote a lot of energy um, or justify taking time away from my family to stay involved. And so my energy is precious. And so I'm going to use it to feed that ancestral energy of this life affirming work, which is how our children come into the world, which is how we're planting the seeds, which is how we're teaching them how to like live off the land still and be in reciprocal balance and, and harmony with our landscapes and ecologies. So to me, that's the, that's where I want to put the, my, the majority of my energy, though I still feel very called to be a voice and speak out against the harm that I see because our children need to know that too, that we spoke out, that we tried to stop it. You know, it's, it's never okay to take a neutral and apathetic approach to harm that's happening against others. And so I think that's like only good that can come from our collective liberation movements and from centering indigenous pregnant families as standards for environmental protections, you know, and, and with any issue. That's a lot of why I do the, I'm so passionate about our, our land-based knowledge. And I'm really blessed to be in my ancestral homelands and have natural spaces. And, but then I look out in one area and, and there's this like huge, <laughs> huge monster you know, and um, and to me, it's really evil what's yeah. what's happening there and the intentions of the people continuing to uphold it with no community reparations or love and care for the people being impacted, you know, and just just hiding under that veil of national security and patriotism while sacrificing indigenous communities and land-based communities. It doesn't make it okay by any means to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then just my last question is how can people contact or connect with you if they have questions or yeah, just want to reach out. Sure. So I work with the breath of my heart birthplace in Española. You can look, look us up on www.breathofmyheart.org. There's, we're also part of a larger coalition called communities for clean water, ccwnewmexico.org. And so any of the organizations in that coalition, you can, you can reach out to around these issues. There's a lot of awesome indigenous-led movements in our area, you know, Pueblo Action Alliance for one. Again, it's like it's like the nuclear colonialism is one thing, but there's also like the oil and gas issues. There's also like the educational despair. You know, there's just like so much that you can contribute to if you want to be in support. And also I would say to look in your own area and how are you connecting in a real meaningful way with the indigenous people and ancestral energy of the place you're in? Mm. How are you helping to restore the lands that you are on as a guest? And then maybe you're picking five seeds that you're going to commit to growing for your life, you know, and continue on that way of cultural memory and making sure that the original peoples once again have full access and equity with their their lands and waters and this original knowledge that's taken and appropriated and suppressing our matrilineal ways of knowing as indigenous peoples. So I just think like anything that any energy that you're putting into that ancestral energy is going to bring good. 
you know, and so um, I know these issues are not for everybody to really dive deep into, but there's, if you're focusing on like lifting up that ancestral energy and the peoples who are still a living part of that, then nothing but good can come from that. Thank you so much to Beata for speaking with us and tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Thanks everyone.